Rabbi Wilson needs no introduction since he basically lives on the fourth floor here and I just visit in the summer. I love hearing Rabbi Wilson speak on basically anything he's talking about. I've heard him lecture on Tanakh before and uh, again, uh, I think you're in for a treat. His topic tonight is pre and post Mikivat Echa, the way that other other parts of Jewish tradition talk about what precedes the destruction of the temple and then recast the destruction of the temple in historical hindsight. Thank you, thank you. Hi everybody, good evening. Thank you all so much for coming. It's great to see new faces in the building. It is great to see faces of people that I am enjoying very much learning with every day at the moment. And it's also great to see faces of people who spend much time uh, in this building throughout the year and make downtown Manhattan their home. And on behalf of everybody who spends their time here throughout the year, I want to say thank you to Drisha and all the people who are making up the Drisha programs for bringing uh, Torah and energy to NYU and the Brooklyn Center in downtown Manhattan over the summer. So, I don't know if anybody saw the title of tonight's Shiur and thought to themselves, oh my gosh, this is premature. You know, Tisha B'Av still feels like a very long way away. You know, it's like Hanukkah's over and then you start uh, you know, cleaning for Pesach. So, apologies if it sort of shocked you a little bit in the calendar. But Shavuot is over. And so the next thing happening in the, the Jewish calendar is, of course, the three weeks. Begins on 17th of Tammuz ends in mid-August on Tisha B'Av. And of course the three weeks focuses on the destruction of the temple, both temples, the first in 586 before the Common Era, and the second in the year 70 of the Common Era. Um, but because we are before the three weeks, I thought I could allow myself to not be focused on the inner drama of the destruction of the temple per se, but rather to allow ourselves to take a bit of a longer view, both a longer view before and the sort of the backstory to Megillat Echa, the book of Tanakh, which we read on Tisha B'Av, and also the postscript. What happens to the book of Echa afterwards in the hands of Hazal, the sages of the Talmud, when they write their Midrashic work? What messages and what lessons do they take from the book of Echa. And by expanding our lens quite significantly, starting the story of the three weeks in the temple 150, 200 years before the destruction of the temple, and ending the story several hundred years after the destruction of the second temple, hopefully we will be able to really find out some interesting ideas, some interesting thoughts which can enrich our appreciation of the three weeks as a whole. Let's begin by talking about the uh, character and the title of the shield, Jeremiah Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu is a central figure. Yirmiyahu is important for us because he is the author, as the tradition has it, of Megillat Echa, the book of Lamentations. Yirmiyahu actually writes three books of Tanakh. Three books are associated with him, according to the Gemara in Baba Batra. The first is Malachim, Book of Kings. The second is his own book of prophecy, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah. And the third is the book of Echa. And these three books can be understood to 
have an intrinsic connection with one another. They are all interested in the same topic, which is the destruction of the temple. Now, if anybody's ever learned Malachim, this might seem quite strange to you, because the book of Malachim starts so far, I mean, it starts before there even is a temple. But it's a critical point to understand, whenever we encounter the book of Malachim, that Malachim is written as a backward glance, essentially asking the question of how did we get here? Malachim, which ends more or less with the destruction of the first temple, is a several centuries worth story of how did we arrive at this point. So Malachim is the before. Yilmiyahu, the book of prophecies themselves, for the most part take place in Jerusalem, not exclusively. Yilmiyahu's warnings and exhortations to the people about what they must do in order to change their behavior and avert catastrophe. And Echa is the aftermath. Echa is the book which is written, it's hard to know exactly when is it in the weeks after the destruction of the temple, is it in the months or years, it doesn't really matter. It's written with extremely close proximity to the destruction of the temple. What Yomiyahu gives us, therefore, is the before, the during, and the after. The first source on the sheet, which we won't read, but for those of you who are studying uh, with every afternoon, we spoke about this source uh, last week. It's a very important uh, midrash in Abod the Rebbe Natan, which presents us with three prophetic models. And it essentially says that there are two ways to fail as a prophet, and there's one way to succeed. <coughs> the two ways to fail are that either you overrepresent God, and you underrepresent the people. The second model is to do the opposite, to overrepresent the people and to underrepresent God. And the third model is the ability to stand in the middle. For a Navi to be able to present God's case to the Jewish people and present the Jewish people's case to God. The Midrash describes Yirmiyahu as this ideal balance. It's actually fascinating which verse it picks. It picks a verse from Echa itself towards the end, Nahnu Pashanu Marinu, we transgressed, we rebelled, Atalo Salachta, you have not forgiven us. It's fascinating how that final few words, Atalo Salachta, isn't you just as descriptive, but actually is read as an accusation on Yumiyahu's part to God, you should have forgiven us, and you have not. Let's begin by getting into the backstory. There's a historical moment which is critical for the story, and that is the invasion of the land of Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, by Assyria, Ashur, and its king, Sancheirib. Sancheirib has already conquered the northern kingdom. Once upon a time, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Sancheirib destroys the northern kingdom and exiles the tribes amongst his large empire, never to return to Jewish history, or at least not yet. And then, continuing south, on his way to Egypt, he arrives at the gates of Yerushalayim. Chizkiyahu is the king of Jerusalem. The odds seem to not be in Chizkiyahu's favor. It's an enormous army, 185,000, we are told. Hizkiyahu is, however, a good king. He's a king who does what a king is supposed to do, not only 
military preparations, but he also turns into Bilat to Hashem, turns to Yishayahu, the prophet, and the catastrophe is averted. Source, what says number one, second source, the very end of the story, the story has started in Malachim Bet, chapter 18, this is at the end of chapter 19. And it was on that night, an angel of God went out, struck the Assyrian camp, 185,000, presumably the people behind the walls, arose in the morning, all there were corpses. returned, went back to his home in Assyria. As far as we know, he never got to Egypt. This is a dramatic story on any account. A whole army camped outside the walls is destroyed in a single night. We know it's an important story because it appears not just here, but in multiple other places as well. It appears in Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Perek, Lamed, Prakim, Lamed, Hay, and Lamed Vav, I believe, chapters 35 and 36, and also in Divrei Hayamim Bet, Perek Yutret, second book of Chronicles, chapter 18, a story that appears in three different points in Tanakh. We know it's an important story. It even seems to appear in an external source, a non-Jewish source, several hundred years later, in the book of Herodotus. Herodotus, who is called the father of history, I don't think he's the father of history, because I liked uh, the Greek historian a couple of generations later, Thucydides. I wrote my my undergraduate thesis on him, but we'll talk about that another time. But uh, Herodotus, who is writing in the 480s, I believe, so a couple of hundred years after this event, is retelling the history of the known world and describes how Sanherib's army is wiped out overnight outside the gates of Jerusalem. He describes it as a plague of mice which gnaw through all their weapons and all of their food supplies. Fascinating that this story has survived in the ancient uh, Near East and has migrated to Greece and was really clearly a major story that was told. What is the effect? story. What seems to be the case is that if a king, a Jewish king, can be inside Jerusalem faced with a terrifying army, enormous, and if any of you are ever in London, I highly recommend you spend an afternoon at the British Museum, and you can actually see how the Assyrians told their own story. They were a people who took violent conquest of the Near East to new levels. If a king of Jerusalem can return in Tefillah to God, pray to God, and this army will be wiped out. That inspires now enormous confidence and pride in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God's protectorate. Jerusalem is the place where God cares about. It's where his home is. That's where the temple stands. And the people who he cares about are there. Jerusalem, therefore, takes on an aura of indestructibility that it will always be maintained. There is a Mizmor Tehillim, one of the Psalms, which if you ever go to Shul, or even if you don't go to Shul, you just dive into yourself on a Monday morning, you'll be familiar with, which seems to reference this idea, seems to describe Jerusalem in the aftermath of 
Chizkiyahu's victory against Sanhedrin. Shiru is more than Gadol Hashem umehul al-mi'od. Praise for God, how great he is. Be'ir Eloheinu, in the city of our God, how could shot this holy mountain. Yafeh nof mesos kol ha'aretz ha'otzion yalketit zfon kiryat meret rab. Most beautiful, the fairest of sights on all of the earth. Elohim ba'armonotecha noda lemisgad. God in her palaces is known as a stronghold. Foreign kings pass by. They see it. They're astonished at the city. They're overcome. They shake. Like a woman giving birth, they are, they are in terror. On the yacht Tarshish, an eastern wind breaks the boats of Tarshish. Kasher shamanu ken ra'inu, they say. Just as we have heard about Jerusalem, this mighty city, so now we've seen it. Be'ir Hashem tzavakot, be'ir Elokeinu, Elokim yechonanea ad olam sela. God is in this city. God is in the midst of this city. May it be maintained forever. We can't prove it. and We don't know exactly when this Mizmor Tehillim was written. But it seems to reflect an idea of Jerusalem as a place which God not only cares about, but who is going to protect it. Jerusalem is indestructible. If it could face down the armies of Assyria, it will never be destroyed. This idea is a dramatic one in the theological history of the Jewish people, most especially as it is presented to us by the Nevi'im. And this is an idea which the Nevi'im see as wholly negative. The idea that Jerusalem is God's special protectorate, that Jerusalem is indestructible, is an idea which the prophets understand is only going to cause great harm to Jewish-Israelite society. At multiple places do the Nubiyim, the prophets, before the destruction of the temple, warn against this idea. Yirmiyahu, unsurprisingly, will be the most vocal, but he is also prefaced by a number of others. Let's begin with Micha. Source number three. Listen to this. Heads of the house of Jacob. Officers of Israel. To detest justice. They pervert all that is straight. Those who build Zion in blood. And Jerusalem through corruption. Her heads judge through bribes. Her priests will only perform their rights for a price. And her prophets take money in order to prophesy. And upon God they rely, saying, God is in our midst. No evil 
shall come upon us. God is in our midst. We've seen what happens to Assyria when they tried. They were wiped out. God will protect us. It doesn't matter what we do. We are fully confident of God's protection. Lachem continues, Micha, therefore, Bigelachem Zion Sadeh Tefavesh. Zion shall be ploughed like a field, for your Shalayim Ayn Tihir, Jerusalem, will become rubble, the Har Habayit, the Bamotiyah, and the Temple Mount will become a forest. If you think, says Micha, that God's concern for you and God's protection of you is unconditional, and that God's interest in having Yerushalayim as his center does not depend upon the way in which you treat others in your society, if that's what you think, you're in for a surprise. God has no interest in maintaining a relationship with that sort of city, with that sort of people. Zion will be destroyed. Several generations later, Micha's message has not been heard. And Yirmiyahu in two places seems to reference back to Micha and back to the negative message which flowed from Chizkiyahu's victory. This is what he says, source number four. Thus does God say to Israel, Improve your ways. And I'll dwell with you in this place. Do not rely upon this falsehood saying, That is a phrase to remember. He mimics them. He copies them. You say, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, we are, we have God's sanctuary. Nothing negative can happen to us. If you do indeed improve your ways, you do justice between one another. Stranger, orphan, widow, you don't abuse. You don't spill blood in this place. And you do not follow other gods. No evil shall happen to you. Indeed, God will protect you. But if you do not, I've skipped a few verses. I will do to my home, to my house, the temple, which has my name on it and which you are so sure of. And this place I gave to your fathers, I will do to it as I did to Shiloh. Shiloh, early on in the book of Shmuel, those of you who are learning 929, we've recently come to it. Eli, the priest, so concerned about the Mishkan, so concerned about the Aaron, less concerned about Israel, even less concerned about his own sons who die. Shiloh is destroyed, Yirmiyahu tells us, and so too the temple will be as well, if you put all of your value onto the temple. Later on, he returns exactly to the words of Micha, saying once again to them, if you improve your ways, then all good, I will look for you, but if you do not, this place will be destroyed. And this is the background to Echa. This is the story that emerged in the aftermath of a great success, which the Nevi'im saw as extremely toxic and damaging, and which was not heeded and ended in tragedy. The lesson of it is that unlike the pagan conception which the people seem to be 
reference it, that the God is connected to its place, and that the God will protect that place. That is not how Hashem works. Hashem is interested in the moral and religious fiber of a community. He is not interested in worship if it doesn't also come along with justice. The destroyed temple is destroyed. Yomayahu is not listened to. Eicha is written. The second temple is rebuilt. It stands for more than 600 years. But it again is destroyed, not by the Babylonians, but this time by the Romans. And this time, after the destruction of the second temple, there is no simple, relatively short window of a couple of generations, 70 years before Jerusalem is returned to, before a third temple is rebuilt. Rather, it is a long exile, one which does not appear in any way to be coming to a close. It's in this context that Hazal, the sages, need to grapple with the book of Echa. On the one hand, yes, Echa is excellent to read on Tisha B'Av and to feel the devastation and to understand what was lost. But if you are looking at a dispossessed community, one which by the time Chazal are writing, depending when you, you know which moment in Chazal, have been living in exile now for hundreds of years, who don't see any likelihood of a return to the land of Israel or mass and Jewish sovereignty, what sort of message can you take out of Echa? The message is a really bleak one. The message is a really, really difficult one. And so what happens when Chazal write their work of Midrash on Megillat Echa? There are ten books which make up the collection known as Midrashay Rabbah. Five on the Torah, one on each of the books, and five on the Megillot. Megillot being Shehashirim, Rut, Esther, Kohelet, and Echa. These books have got nothing in common with one another, other than they were published uh, and put together. They're written in different times and at different places. Echa is one of the earliest ones. Echa Rabbah. I think it might even be the second one after Bereshit Rabbah, which implies to us that this was a very important book for Chazal to find their message. And what we are going to see in the time that we've got left is how Chazal take this work and are somehow able to turn it on its head in order that Echa is able to move from being arguably one of the saddest, most tragic books of the Bible, as its English translation implies, Lamentations, and move it, actually, and this will surprise you, into being a source of hope, a source of comfort, even a source of humour, as we will see. Let's, uh, let's begin. Of course, you might say, well, isn't that just what Chazal are always doing? Aren't Chazal always taking biblical texts and, in their wonderful uh, ways, are threading Midrashim, which are able to come out with wonderful messages, which, which did not appear to be in the text? That is true. However, when it comes to Echa, it reaches whole new levels. Let's look at the following one. Source number two. Ein la Menachem says Jerusalem is alone. She's abandoned. She has no comforter. 
כל מקום שנאמר אין, הלילה. Any time in the Tanakh where it says there is not, what that actually means is there is. Let's look at a few examples. Behiti Sarai Akarav, in love blood. Sarai, Sarah, was barren, unable to have a child. In the end, Havila, she did have a child. Shneemal, Vashem Pagadat Sarah, God remembered Sarah. Paravatye, similarly, Hana, en Yeladim, Hana, unable to have children. In the end, Havila, she had. Betachavatye, and similarly, Sion he Doresh, Sion he Doresh in La, Zion has no one to call for her. In the end, Havila, quoting Yishayahu, written prior to Yishayahu, Uvalet Zion Goel, a redeemer will come to Zion. Ach Kem, so too here, Jerusalem. Atal Mer, en Lamelachem, you say Jerusalem has no comforter. In the end, Havila, Anochi, Anochi, Hummenachem. Says God, I will be her comforter. I showed this midrash to a friend of mine once and said, like, what's to stop somebody writing midrash who says, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem, Echad? Every time it says Echad, it means three. How expansive can the midrash get? But what you see here is really clearly a desire to make Echa work for us. How can Eicha not simply be a book which depresses us, but a book which actually can give us messages of consolation? How are they able to do this? On the one hand, there is the great need, which I've also mentioned, but there's also a sense of distance, which I think is worth thinking about. Historical distance. Let's look at this one. Rabbi Yochanan have darishitin apin Hashem Rabbi Yochanan had 60 different explanations of the verse that God devoured and did not relent. It's a verse in chapter 2 of Eichah. The Rebbe, his teacher, Rebbe, only had 24 explanations. And in the scheme of this, it's surprising because you expect the teacher to be greater than the student. So how can the student have more than twice the amount of interpretations that the teacher has? Rabbi Yochanan Yatira Rebbe. How was it that Rebbe Yochanan had more than that? By being that much closer to the destruction of the temple, he may even have been born around the year 70, he certainly would have grown up with parents who had lived within it. That much closer to the destruction, he would remember it. He would cry, he would weep, he would break down. He would be unable to engage in any creative way with the destruction of the temple and with the text. Says this Midrash, there is something about historical distance which allows one to respond in a more profound, a deeper, more creative manner than if you are living in great proximity to the event. If you are living extremely close to the terrible event, you're overwhelmed by it. The only response is silence or paralysis. You can't say anything about it. Of course, there's very clearly a 20th century parallel, which is that for a significant amount of time, 
after the Shoah, people did not speak about them. I mean, certain people did, but they did, would not be able to attract the crowd. I remember Rabbi Yitz Greenberg telling me, uh, Rabbi in Riverdale for many decades, saying that in, nine, in the 1960s, I can't remember exactly when, but not even the very beginning of the 60s, had Elie Wiesel coming to his shul, and they did everything that pre-social media sure would do to advertise it. This person coming, someone, Holocaust survivor, great Jewish educator, written about it. They promoted it, they got 25 people. Right? If we were said that Elie Wiesel is coming to speak at NYU tomorrow, sorry, it's a Ronaldi Bracha, a couple of years ago, if we'd said Elie Wiesel would come to speak at NYU tomorrow, we'd get thousands of people. Right? You wouldn't need to publicize it weeks in advance. But there's something throughout the 50s, throughout the 60s, just, you couldn't, you couldn't speak about it. It was, it was too raw, too close. Chazal, living at a greater distance, and obviously they write over generation, from the destruction of the temple, are able to say much more about it than Yirmiyahu was, who wrote Echa in great proximity to the destruction of the temple. So there is both the greater need, sorry, there is both the need that this isn't changing anytime soon, we need to be able to give a message to our communities who are living in exile without the temple, and there's also the ability to say more by being somewhat distant. I want to look at a few themes, a few ways in which Hazal, in this work, a Harabah, are able to... Um, weave their message into the text. This is what my teacher, uh, Dr. Yael Ziegler, calls the theological vacancies in Megillah Echa. Yael has an excellent uh, course, I believe, for a number of years. She's, some of you may know her book on Roots, which is like that. Uh, she is, I believe, now we're working on a book on Echa. Her Tara on it is excellent, and I was very profoundly influenced by it, and much of this comes from studying with her. So Yael uh, speaks about theological vacancies in Megillah Echa, things that Echa does not provide, doesn't give answers to, which the Midrash fits into. The first is, why did it happen? What was it that Amisrael did wrong? Now, there are a few stock answers, which if you've gone to Jewish schools, you'll say, causes hatred, the big three, etc., etc. According to Megillah Echa, why did it happen? Well, not really very clear. Maybe you get some sense of corruption of elites, but there's not anything really specified as to why it takes place, what Israel are being punished for. Why is this so dangerous? Why does it matter whether or not Megillah Echa describes why the temple is destroyed? It matters because if it's not spelt out, then you might draw a different conclusion. God is not punishing Israel. God is abandoning Israel. And there's a very big difference between the two. Because punishment, despite its hugely negative connotations, implies a relationship. There is a relationship there. Yes, Israel have not lived up to what they're supposed to do, and God is punishing them. But that punishment is indicative of the relationship. But an alternative and much more terrifying explanation is that actually God has ended it. There is no longer a relationship there. The temple is being destroyed. 
Rome is able to commit its terrible persecutions of the Jewish people, which very much continue, in fact, even reach a greater height after the destruction of the temple, the Hadrianic persecutions in the 2nd century, not because God's punishing Israel, but because the relationship is no longer there. And of course, one doesn't need to be an expert on the history of this period to know that there is, in fact, a group which is saying exactly this. This is the period of the birth of Christianity, which takes as its basic premise that the relationship between God and the people Israel is over. God has ended his relationship with them, and God's relationship with humanity has now moved to a fundamentally new stage. And if the destruction of the temple is seen as proof of that, then that's very terrifying. And so what Hazal want to do then is to find a number of ways in which they can say, no, actually, the temple, and here we're referring to both temples, was destroyed for specific reasons. And the reasons that it gives are going to be very important. Now, you're all looking at the source sheet. I know you're thinking, oh, I read ahead, as he was going to say. Well, I'm going to trick you now. Let's turn to the very end. This is a very, very brief list of the various sins that only Eicharaba chapter 1 says as to why the temple was destroyed. Let's see if I can do this all in a single breath. They did not keep Shabbat. They were cruel to non-Jews. They took advantage of the poor. They had no right to speak to them. They stopped doing hits for angry deeds. They were false prophets. They spilled innocent blood. They were joyous at the downfall of their fellow man. They did not turn to God in repentance. They shared the burden of mitzvah. They were arrogant. They worshipped idols. They hated one another needlessly. They ate hummets on Pesach. My favourite one, they did not pay their teachers enough. <laughs> they did not keep Yom Kippur. They denied the oneness of God. They did not do mitzvah. They stopped sacrifices. They stopped learning Torah. They profaned the name of God. They profaned the temple. They defined the validity of Kumash. They denied the validity of the Ten Commandments. They did not do Brit Milah. They did not listen to prophets. They ate the poor man's tithes. Wow, that was a lot. Now, although today in the 20th, 21st century, we definitely live in a period where it is not acceptable to say a certain tragedy occurred because people were doing such and such. I mean, there are parts of the world where they do do that. We are not associated with that. We find that very repugnant. Nevertheless, something is being done here, I think which is not to keep abuse on Israel, but actually to paint Israel's situation both in Echa and in the destruction of the Second Temple and their contemporary situation as actually part of the covenant. What do these, this litany of sins have in common with one another? They are things which can be made up for. You can start not eating comments on Pesach. You can treat one another more kindly. You can be kinder to Jews and to non-Jews. You can pay your teachers more. Pay your teachers more. Pay your teachers more. And if so, what that provides, therefore, is a method by which we can make things better. We can atone. We can get back to the sort of relationship with God which we are to have in a more ideal sense, and in which, hopefully, our situation will improve. We understand what the problem was with society in Jerusalem when the temple was destroyed, and we can make it better. It provides something of a blueprint and a roadmap. We've discussed this somewhat in uh, our politics class, those of us who are spending the afternoons learning together. There's one reason which doesn't appear here in this text, which is that uh, why was the temple destroyed? Right. Of course, one could say, why was the temple destroyed? Because Rome was one of the greatest military 
uh, powers of all time ever in history, and it massively overwhelmed us and crushed us. That doesn't appear there. And there's this lovely irony. By saying this happened because we didn't treat one another well, Chazal are depriving Rome of the victory. Rome think, oh, we destroyed the temple. No, you didn't. You're just pawns in God's game. This is really about Am Yisrael and Hashem. And, you know, we can make it better if we want to. It restores to Israel their own agency. There's a particular emphasis on the idea of Talmud Torah. The Talmud Torah, again, those of us who've been learning in, together in the afternoons, this is much the work of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. A huge focus is put on Talmud Torah as the sin which was sort of so lacking and which therefore can be made up for. I saw a hand. Yes. Um, are these sins, Right, right. Well, the way in which Midrash is written is that it's not really written in the sort of sense of historical, this is what was happening then, and here we are now. It, it inserts itself into the text, and so I guess you could say it's describing them, but there is something of a timeless element to the Midrash, such that it would be read in a way which I, think, I don't think would be, oh, look at them, what they were doing, but would be read as, well, yes, we don't eat comments on Pesach, hopefully, but I probably could be more considerate to the people around me. I probably could give more staka. So I think it does also work as a, as a prompt to action on the part of the readers. That is the first theological basis. Why was the temple destroyed? Echa does not provide reasons, the book of the Bible. Midrash Echa Rabbah does provide. Here's the second one. The role and personality of God. Who is God in Megillah Echa? How does God present? Furious, angry. Hayat Hashem Ko'oyev. God was like the enemy. And that's an extremely strong phrase. Sometimes God just doesn't seem to be there and you just get this sort of overwhelming wrath and violence of the Babylonians. Now, this is powerful to read on Shabbat, but it's actually quite a hard uh, message to sell to your community. God is our enemy. Like That, that, that doesn't really work very well for people. Uh, I prefer my God not to be my enemy. And so again, Hazal have got work to do to take Megillat Echa and find in it a way in which Hashem presents otherwise. And in their work in the Midrash, God moves from the aggressor or the enemy to actually identifying with Israel. You might have heard the idea of the Shekhinah, God's presence is also exiled. That finds its origin in Midrash Echa even more than that, God becomes almost the primary victim. So look at this Midrash, source number four. God says to the angels, let's go. You and I, let's look at my house. What the enemies did to us. 
מיד הלך לקדוש ברוך הוא מלאכי אשר הביאו מיהו לבניו. ראו גם ג'רמיה אקסיס. וכיוון שראה הקדוש ברוך הוא את בית המקדש ומן גוד סור דטמפל. אמר he said בוודאי זהו ביתי yes I recognize that this is my home וזהו מנוחתי this is my resting place שבאו אויבים ועשו בו כרצונם the enemies came and did as they wished. באותו שעה at that moment היה הקדוש ברוך הוא בוכה God cried ואומר ונסד אוי לי על ביתי woe to me for my house בניי היכן אתם my children where are you כהני היכן אתם my priests where are you אוהבי היכן אתם my lovers where are you מה אעשה לכם what can I do for you התראיתי לכם I tried to warn you ולא חזרתם בתשובה you didn't refer אמר הקדוש ברוך הוא לירמיה אני דומה היום I am comparable today לאדם שהיה לו בן יחידי, to a man who had a single child, ועשו לו חופה, and made for that child a wedding canopy, ומת בתוך חופתו, and the child dies under the חופה, ואין לך כאב לא עליי ולא על בניי, and you, the angels, even Yirmiyahu, you cannot understand the pain which I am feeling. HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes from the enemy to being the primary victim. Hashem identifies with Israel. Hashem is with Israel in their suffering. What has happened to them has happened to him as well. Israel are not to feel alone. Hashem is with them. And here's the final one. Believe it or not, the book of Eicha is not particularly funny. If any of you have ever read Eicha, it's not a book that you laugh very much at. However, Midrash Eicha Rabbah is actually rather a humorous work. Um, Dr. Ziegler jokes, uh, joke, he says it quite seriously, but it's quite funny. You know, the, uh, there are, the, the list of things that we're allowed to learn on Tisha B'Av is quite restricted. Right? You can learn the Book of Eoch, Job, you can learn the, uh, uh, the Gemarot in Gittin and elsewhere about the destruction of the Temple. But you're not supposed to learn Torah generally because Torah brings joy. Um, but the Shulchan Aruch does say that you can learn Midrash Eicha Rabbah. And as we'll see, it has moments in it which can really make you smile. I didn't put any of these on the sheet. You can definitely Google it. There's a whole series of really just extended jokes about Jerusalemites and Athenians, which are a little bit hard to understand at a distance of 1,500 years of what the joke is. But basically, the Athenian, I don't know why, Athens... But I guess that represents power. No, the Athenian sort of like represents, you know, power and rashness. But he's really quite stupid. And the Jerusalemite is the one who is sort of much, much cleverer and always gets the last laugh. Whole like long, long stories. Just Google them and, and you can find them. Um, I just picked one example for ex- exaggeration. What Chazal wants to try and do is to sort of have a sense of what was. Ha'ir Abati'am, the city which was so populous with people, a verse you'll recognize from early on in the chapter. Tani Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Shmuel taught, sort of classic, like Chazal, the city which was so numerous. Well, how big, right? Chazal wants to quantify. Rabbi Shmuel teaches, there are 24 sections of Jerusalem. Market, there were 24 sub-markets. While Kosher, Rishka, Esimah, there were 24 courtyards in each one of these sub-markets. 
ועל כל חצר וחצר, אני אומר קורטיות, 24 בתים, פני פורהאוד, וכל חצר וחצר, הייתה מוציאה עם כפלים כיוצאים מצרים. There were more than twice the amount of people in each one of these chatzerot. So if you just take the number 600,000 leave Egypt, twice that 1.2 million, there are 1.2 million in each of the, the uh, courtyards of Jerusalem. I see Rabbi Reichman uh, on his phone, maybe on his calculator. I don't know how many of you can do maths quite like that. It's you know, 1.2 million to the power of I, I don't know what. It comes out at something like 9 billion. Okay? According to this midrash, which might not be meant to be taken literally, if one is sometimes allowed to say that, there were 9 billion people in Jerusalem. <laughs> which gives one a sense of, now like, I think Rabbi Shmuel knows this wasn't true, the world has not yet reached 9 billion, right? It gives one a sense of, you know, this was the glory, and it was lost, but what once was can be again. Let's conclude just with a single midrash, which hopefully captures as a whole how Chazal wants to take this moment of, of Megillat Eichan, of the destruction of the Temple, which is of course a moment of such tragedy, but actually build it into a longer sense of Jewish history and the relationship with God. Zot ashiv alibi al-kein ofhil, this will I take to heart and I will forgive. Rabbi Abba Baal-Kahana b'shem Rabbi Yochna, Amar, Mashal Lamaha Dada Domet. What can it be compared? Lamelech shenasam atfuna King married, great woman. gave her a great wedding uh, document. I'm not sure that means a classic kubah, but uh, an actual sort of uh, gift. But Amal said in it, These are the canopies I'm going to make for you. All of the precious stones I'm going to give for you. All this expresses my love. God left her, sorry, the king left her. Went overseas and spent a long time there. Her neighbors went into her. They would mock her, they'd say to her, The king has abandoned you. He's gone overseas. He's not coming back to but when she would go back into her house, she would read her and she'd see all the great things with which her husband had expressed her love for her. She'd be comforted. After many days, the king returned. He said, my, my, my daughter, my love, I'm astonished. How did you wait for me all of those years? She said to him, Were it not for the great Tuba that you wrote for me, my neighbors would have already dispossessed me. Really feel here the interreligious atmosphere. Thus do the idolaters say to Israel, they say, God has hidden his, your God has hidden his face from you. He's removed his presence from you. He is not coming back to you. They cry, they weep. When they go into their shores, into their study houses, 
וקוראים בתורה, אני read in the Torah, ביקרא, chapter 26, the blessings, ופניתי עליכם, I will turn to you, הפרעתי אתכם, I will make you. ונתתי משכני בתוככם, I will put my countenance amongst you, והתהלכתי בתוככם, I will walk amongst you, והן מתנחמים, they are comfortable. למחר, God will say to Israel, בני my children, אני תמד מכם, I am amazed at you. How did you wait all of those years? And they will say to him, Master of the universe, were it not for the Torah that you wrote for us, that you gave us, we would have been lost many, many years ago. Please God, we can all, in the approach to the three weeks, take something from this, the backstory, the warning, but also how the three weeks can play a role not just of tragedy, but actually also of forming Am Yisrael's identity over history. Thank you very much. <laughs>